Today I'm bringing a message titled, United in Christ. And so you could open your Bible to Ephesians chapter 2, and we'll read a passage from Ephesians 2 in just a moment. But unity is unusual. It's very uncommon in our world. And, you know, that point in today's kind of where we are, I, I really don't have to spend hardly any time convincing you that unity is hard to come by. Um, the way things have gone the last year and a half in our nation and our world. But this isn't a new thing. It's not like everybody was just getting along great up until about a year and a half ago. If you think on the international level, you think in the 20th century, you have World War I, which was, they called it the war to end all wars. Uh, it turns out it wasn't. And uh, so, but they got the League of Nations together, get everybody together, think, oh, we'll avoid wars in the future. And all that led to was World War II, which was worse than World War I. And so they say, okay, we're going to do better. We get the United Nations. Let's all get together. Let's have this international unity. And the United Nations was a place where people could get together and argue during the Korean War and the Vietnam War and the Cold War and the War on Terror. And it goes on and on. But you, you get down to just the national level. Uh, we've seen plenty of disunity in our nation. Uh, for the entirety of our nation, but especially, I'd say, in the last couple of years. Think even on a smaller level, think maybe where you work. Some of you might be in management, and you kind of know a lot of your job is just trying to keep people getting along, right? Uh, I looked up some articles in major business publications, and here are some of the titles. I didn't read all these, but here are some of the titles. Getting Along at Work, How to Manage Conflicts Between Employees, when employees hate each other. And then here's my favorite. The top five ways to manage closed-minded, defensive, truth-resistant people. So some of you will be Googling that later um, or now, you know. Um, but people long for peace, for, for unity. Uh, you know, you may know John Lennon's famous song, Imagine, that gets kind of pulled out whenever people aren't getting along. And in it, he says, imagine there's no countries, it isn't hard to do, nothing to kill or die for, and no religion too. Imagine all the people living life in peace. And so in his kind of utopian vision, he says, hey, if we can get rid of geopolitical boundaries, and if we can get rid of religion then we can experience the shalom, the peace that we long for. The Bible, one of the things I love about it is just, it's just so realistic. And it is very honest and very realistic about the fracture in humanity, right? About the division that we experience at every level. But the Bible presents a completely different solution than John Lennon does. The Bible says that it's only through Jesus Christ and his death on the cross that barriers can be removed between individuals and groups and that true peace and lasting and deep unity can come. And so we're going to see in this passage that I'm about to read that the main place that God is doing this uniting and reconciling work in the world is in his church, is in the church of Jesus Christ. And we're going to see as we read this passage that Jesus Christ died, 
Yes, to save sinners. Yes, to draw us near to God. But Jesus Christ died in order to create a united people. And so let's read, beginning in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 11, and we'll read through the end of the chapter. I'm reading in the English Standard Version. I know many of you are reading uh, the NASB, and it's not that different. Therefore, remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands, remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances, that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. For through him, we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him, you also are being built together into a dwelling place by, for God by the Spirit. Father, we thank you for your glory. We thank you that you are glorious in holiness, you are glorious in love, you are glorious in truth and wisdom, and we thank you that you have chosen to put your glory on display in your church. Lord, would you help us to understand there is a lot in this passage, and I pray that you would grant us through your spirit, do your illuminating work Help us to understand what you are doing and, and, and to not just understand, but help us to feel the, the greatness and the beauty of this work that you're doing in your people in this world. So please, through your spirit, work among us. Help me, help us. In Jesus' name, amen. God created the church big church, and each particular local church, God created the church in order to glorify him, to put on display who he is, what he's like. And one of the ways that we glorify God is through our unity, our oneness as a people. And so here's the main truth of this passage. The main thing, we're basically going to state this, and then we're going to spend the rest of our time unpacking it. The main truth of this passage is this. The church glorifies God as diverse individuals are brought together into a real and deep unity through Jesus Christ. 
I know that's a mouthful, so I'll repeat it, and then we'll spend the rest of time unpacking it. But the church glorifies God as diverse individuals are brought together into a real and deep unity through Jesus Christ. So I'm going to break that statement down into two truths, and then we will apply it in as many ways as we have time for. All right, so first truth is this. The church consists of diverse individuals brought together into a real and deep unity. We're kind of jumping into this letter. I know you, you're in another place in the Bible week after week, and we're jumping in just out of, you know, just kind of for one week, and we'll be jumping out into Ephesians. And, and actually, this is maybe the most complex part of Ephesians, so we need to understand a little bit about what's going on. In our passage, Paul is talking about how Christ has brought two very different kinds of people together in the church in Ephesus, Jews and Gentiles together in one church. Jews and Gentiles were about as different as any two groups of people can get. This was the greatest social division of the time. And Paul, who was there in Ephesus when this church launched, he knows these people and he knows in this church there are Jews and there are Gentile Christians. And so in chapter 2, verse 11, he's been going for a little while and then he kind of pauses and says, and he speaks directly to the Gentiles within the church. And he says, therefore, remember at one time, you Gentiles. So Paul's a Jew. He says, remember you Gentiles, you Gentile believers, you were called the uncircumcision. And at least in the ESV, you kind of have these quotes around it. The uncircumcision. That's what you were called, this derogatory name that you received. And this alludes, this idea of being the uncircumcision, it alludes to a whole series of religious and ceremonial laws that had separated Jews from Gentiles. And so the main one's obvious. Jews were circumcised and Gentiles were not. Jews observed dietary laws, right? And so they wouldn't eat pork, they wouldn't eat bacon, and Gentiles would eat anything. Gentiles did not have to do all these Jewish cleanliness laws, and the Jews had a whole series of laws to keep themselves ritually pure. So you don't touch a dead animal. You don't, you don't go certain places. You don't do certain things. And if you do these wrong things, um, then you need to purify yourself. And the Gentiles didn't pay attention to any of that stuff. So the result of all of these ceremonies, ceremonial laws and rules, was that a Jew would never eat with a Gentile. If there's a surefire way that you would become unclean, it's to eat a meal with people who didn't care about any of your rules. And so uh, they wouldn't eat. And, and really, they, what ended up happening was Jews would often just seek to avoid all contact with Gentiles. Now, you may have this in the back of your mind or the front of your mind. A lot of these rules and laws, they came from God. Right? God had given them, if you read the Old Testament, the first five books, that's what you're going to get, is a lot of these kinds of rules. And God had given these laws, many of them intended them, these ceremonial laws were given to teach his people, to teach Israel that they must be holy. And so this was a, a, a way of teaching them that they needed to be holy, not just in these ceremonial ways, but in their hearts and in their behavior before God. And they needed to be different than all of the pagan nations around them that didn't care about the one true God. And so this was a teaching tool that God tried to instruct them about holiness. And his goal was that they would be a people that looked different than all the other nations. 
and that were, there would be a light to the nations, a light to the Gentiles. And so the Gentiles would look and see, oh, this is what it looks like to live under God's good law. And the peoples would be drawn to God through his chosen people. But much of Israel, maybe most of Israel, had forgotten God's intent and had twisted God's calling to holiness into a hateful despising of Gentiles and people who were different than them. And so they would call them the uncircumcised, or they would have even worse words. They would just call them those Gentile dogs. And some of the extra rules that had been added on to God's law included things like saying it's unlawful to help a Gentile mother who's in labor because you will be bringing another Gentile into the world. Uh, if a Jewish boy or girl married a Gentile, then the, uh, oftentimes the, the family would have a funeral for them because they were dead to the family. And this, of course... This hostility towards Gentiles was, of course, you make sense, right, would be returned by Gentiles who were all also hostile towards Israel. And so there's this huge racial and social and religious divide that existed in the world. You see this at the end of verse 14. Paul calls this the dividing wall of hostility. So there's these rules, but then there's this hostility that had built up over the years. One commentator says that no difference in the modern world, no differences in the modern world are greater than the cultural and religious differences between Jews and Gentiles in, anti in antiquity. All right, so think about whatever divide you want to think about in our world today, right? Um, you could think about the warfare that's going on in Israel right now. You could think about um, racial divides in our country. You could think about political divides in our country and the Jew and Gentile divide at least rivals any of those divisions and likely is greater than those divisions. So Paul is talking to these diverse people, but he says in verse 13, but now, so that's who you were. That's what you used to be called. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Verse 14, for he himself is our peace. He himself is is our peace who has made us both one. So in Jesus, Jesus is doing this work, bringing Jew and Gentile into a unity. Two very diverse groups, divided, alienated, now through Christ become one. And they have what we're calling a real and a deep unity. And I use those words because it's important because there's different kinds of unity in the world, right? There's different, there's unities that are just kind of superficial and surface level. So think about flying on a plane. All right, I flew on a plane last week and they're packing people in and we had a form of unity. I had unity with a lot of people for several hours. Um, we had all kind of had a common destination, a common goal for a while, right? And we had all cho chosen the same organization to help us achieve our goal and to get to where we're going. Uh, we were sitting together. We were all facing in the same direction. We were actually sitting very close uh, to each other. And we, uh, <laughs> well, there's, there's all kinds of unity. We all followed the same rules, right? And our plane went smooth. I know there's been some bad examples lately. Um, so we had unity, but it wasn't a real or, or deep unity. If you're on a plane, uh, you'll be nice to somebody if they talk to you, but you're not really there for the conversation. You're, you're not looking for some kind of deep connection. And when you get to your destination, everybody goes their separate ways and you say so long and it's over. 
And too often, I think, that is the kind of unity that we settle for in the church. Right? So we have a common goal. I want, I want to grow in my relationship with Christ, and maybe we've chosen the same organization to help us get there. I think this church can kind of provide religious services for me that can help me in my life project. And so we sit together, you know, for a couple hours every week, not as, not as close together, all right, as a plane, but we sit together. Um, we all kind of follow the same rules. We learn some things. And, you know, you maybe, you'll be nice to somebody if they want to come up and talk to you. But we're not seeking, like, real or deep heart connection, real relationship. We're not talking about kind of a long-term, lifelong commitment to these people. That is not the kind of unity that God's talking about in this passage. That is not the kind of unity that Jesus Christ died in order to create in his church. Paul uses just kind of a wave of metaphors in this passage in order to try to help us understand the kind of real and deep unity that we should be pursuing in every single local church. So in verse 15, he he says that Christ came so that he might create in himself one new man in the place of two. One new man, or you could translate this one new humanity, but it's really literally one new man, and we'll see why that's helpful later. But before, before these people got saved and ended up in the church, there were kind of two basic races of humanity, Jew and Gentile in their mind. But now, those two very different races have been brought together into a new human race, one new humanity, Paul says. And he uses here intentionally creation language. You see that in verse 15? So that he might create in himself one new man. Now, let your mind go back to the beginning of the Bible, Genesis 1 and 2, when God created one new man, right? His name was Adam. You have one humanity. But after Adam and Eve sinned against God, division and divisiveness entered into our world. It entered into that first marriage, then it entered into their siblings, then it entered into all the different family groups, and the story continues, and the Bible and world history is a story of conflict and division. But through Jesus Christ, God is recreating a new humanity through Jesus. It's it's not characterized by our biological bloodline, but it's characterized, we're brought together by a common bond through the blood of Jesus, one new humanity, Paul says. And then in verse 16, he uses the metaphor of the body. He might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross. So he says the church is like a body. And you know what a body's like. You have a body. So this is a pretty good universal metaphor. A body has diverse parts, right? If you think about your body, there are some very different things on your body. You got bones. You got ligaments, hair, which is a little bizarre. If it's off your head, it's gross, right? But you'll spend lots of money to make it look nice on your head. You got nails, teeth. I mean, there's a lot of different things on a body, but there is a real unity in the body. Each of these parts is interdependent. We're depending on each other within the physical body in order to get anywhere, and we're all headed the same direction. We're so united. The body is so interdependent and such a real and deep unity that, that when the parts stop to work together in our bodies, it is a tragic thing that grieves us. 
right? And that we pray for. Paul says the church is one body. In verse 19, he says, we're one kingdom. Look in verse 19. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens. And that's kingdom language. You're a citizen of one kingdom. There are few loyalties in the world that are as deep as national loyalties. Now you want to test that? For a lot of people, you just like play the Star Spangled Banner or have the Pledge of Allegiance or something and something will well up inside of them. And Paul had said to these Gentile believers in verse 12, remember that you were at that time, you were separated from Christ, but you were also alienated from the commonwealth, from the nation of Israel, and you were strangers to the covenant of the promise. You were aliens to the nation. You were outsiders before right? But now, verse 19, now you're no longer strangers. You're no longer aliens. You are fellow citizens. You have the same king. We are part of the same kingdom. We have the same destination. One kingdom. Verse 19, the the second half, he goes on and he says, you're members of the household of God. So I said there are a few loyalties as strong as national loyalties. Well, we just found one, family loyalty right? And and what Paul says is if you're a Christian, you don't just have the same king, but you have the same father. You're fellow members of God's house. That's why the most common term for Christians in the New Testament, Christians actually barely used, but brothers is used over and over and over again. God tells us in Romans 12, 10, to love one another with a warm, brotherly affection, being in the same family. In verse 20, Paul gives us another metaphor. He says the church is like a building. Verse 20, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure, so there again, there's another building word, right? A structure grows into a holy temple. So this is the kind of building we are. We're a temple to be a dwelling place for God. We're being built together. So think what a building is like. Think about the kind of unity a building has. There's very diverse parts. You've got concrete and wood and metal and stucco and pipes and wires. But all of those different things are joined together in a permanent way for a common purpose, right? And if any one of them is kind of not fitting, then the building doesn't really work and the purpose can't really be accomplished as safely and as fully as you would like. So, so Paul says, here you, you were like this, and I understand, and you still have that kind of in you, like that is your identity, and, and people called you names, and you were different, and you guys were separate, but, but now, through Christ, you are one united race, humanity, body, one kingdom, one family, one building. There is a real and deep unity that exists and that we need to maintain and pursue together of previously such diverse people. All right, that's the first truth. The second truth really answers the question of how. How can this happen? How do we accomplish this? How does God accomplish this in us? And because, and and really we should always ask that how question, but we've seen, you know, in the United States in the last couple years, just a lot, an abnormal amount of kind of disunity and dissension and tension happening in local churches. And so how 
can we experience a building, kingdom, family, body kind of unity? And the answer is this. This real and deep unity is created and grows only through Jesus Christ. This real and deep unity is created and grows only through Jesus Christ. And so let me just say the main truth again. The church consists of diverse individuals brought together into a real and deep unity through Jesus Christ. D.A. Carson um, says this. This is an extended quote. It's one of my favorite quotes. He says, The church itself is not made up of natural friends. It is made up of natural enemies. What binds us together is not common education, common race, common income levels, common politics, common nationality, common accents, common jobs, or anything else of that sort. Christians come together not because they form a natural association, but because they have all been saved by Jesus Christ and owe him a common allegiance. In the light of this common allegiance, in the light of the fact that they have all been loved by Jesus himself, they commit themselves to doing what he says. And he commands them to love one another. In this light, they are a band of natural enemies who love one another for Jesus' sake. I love that quote. Um, I think I included the whole thing in, in a small group question uh, guide. And so if that got left in there, you'll have it. I love this quote. One of the, I use it so much. One of the pastors, other pastors in my church says that we should make up church shirts that say fellowship church, natural enemies. <laughs> and we haven't done it yet, but they probably would sell. Okay. Um, so Jesus is the, uh, is the one who creates this unity. Now, here's another thing I love about the Bible is that the Bible doesn't traffic in kind of just cliches. It doesn't just say, hey, yeah, Jesus does it. But the Bible tells us how Jesus does these things, how Jesus creates a unity and how our trust in him and our following of him can, can bring that about. And so in this passage, we see that Jesus creates this kind of unity through his death. So in verse 13, look, it says, but now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near, how? By the blood of Christ. Then verse 14, he himself is our peace who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh. That's a reference to his giving of his flesh on the cross. So he's broken down in his flesh, the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in the ordinances. Um, verse 16 that he might reconcile us both to God in one body. How? Through the cross. So the, 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 the decisive act that Christ did in order to change the reality of division was his death on the cross. Through the cross. How does the cross change this Jew-Gentile divide? How does this cross change this political divide that threatens to overcome us? How does the cross change a racial divide that threatens to separate us? How does the cross do that? Here's where we got to do a little, a little thinking. Hopefully we've been doing a little thinking, but now we got to do a little bit more. Um, look at verse 15. And in the ESV, what it says is at the end of verse 14, he says, he's broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. 
So Christ, through his death, through giving his body, broke down this dividing wall of hostility by, here's how he did it, by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances. So there was a dividing wall. It had led up to a great amount of hostility and Christ's death has abolished the law of commandments expressed in ordinances so that that wall could be broken down. Now, Paul is talking here primarily about the ceremonial law, which we referred to a little bit earlier in the message. In the Old Testament, you have this whole sacrificial system, which is a part of these ordinances that he's talking about. The sacrificial system so that, to where if you want to come into God's presence, you, you need to bring some animals with you. You need to bring sacrifices. You need to, you need to bring something there if you're going to be in God's presence. And connected to the sacrificial system was the entire temple complex, all right, which pictured this separation from God. You have a, a, a curtain that keeps unclean, unholy people from the Holy of Holies. And in addition to that, if you want to get into the temple proper, you have to be a Jew. So they have a court of the Gentiles where the, the Gentiles who aren't keeping all of these holiness laws, all of these ceremonial laws, can't come into even the Jewish territory of the temple. And now, they, they could eventually, but basically what they would have to do to get in past the court of the Gentiles is to become a Jew. You have to be circumcised and you have to commit yourself to following all of the ceremonial laws. So there's this wall. Right? There's a wall between humanity and God. There's a wall between Jew and Gentile. And all of these things were a source of division, circumcision, food laws, cleanliness laws. This dividing wall, had been, which had been put in place in part by God's law, had become aggravated by human sin and human pride. And what this says in verse 15 is that through Christ's death, he abolished he broke all of those barriers down between God and man and between Jew and Gentile. Now, in Christ, in the fullness of time, in the gospel, now all people, whoever you are, wherever you come from, all people must come to God in exactly the same way through the cross of Jesus Christ. We don't bring sacrifices to get to God. We have a great and final sacrifice in Christ. It's not those who eat the right food can get closer to God and those who don't stay away. It's not the rich get closer and, or the poor get closer. The only way to be reconciled to God is a humble recognition of our sin and a dependent trust in Christ's sacrifice for me. And that's the same for every single person. That's the only way to get to God. All right, so let me try to uh, help us think not just on the Jew and Gentile level, but for all of us, how the cross could bring us into a deep unity together. Let's go back to the plane, all right? And in our culture, one of the great social divides of our time is the divide between first class and coach, <laughs> right? I mean, if there's one barrier you know not to cross, if you are in coach, is you do not go up into first class. You push aside that curtain or you go upstairs or whatever it is, the flight attendants will find you and they will just, they will just see that you do not belong here. And if you do get past the flight attendant, then the, I guarantee the people up there in first class are not going to be happy 
that you've kind of broken in. They spent a lot more money to be there, or they've traveled a lot more. They have done so many things that you didn't do in order to belong there, in order to, to, to have a right to be in that class, right? And so, yeah, you're just going to stay separate. Now imagine a different scenario. Imagine you, and for some of us, this will be very hard to imagine, but imagine. Imagine you are on a great kind of adventure, a trek through the mountains, in the winter, in the snow. And sorry, a little dangerous, but it's, it's beautiful, and you're with a group, and you have a guide, and you're going, and then all of a sudden, just a massive several-day snow, snowstorm hits, and it's just a whiteout. You can't see where you're going. You are lost, completely lost, and you have really just no hope of survival. You, your food's gone, um, you're wasting away, and the, the snow clears, but you're going to die. And then, after several days, you hear coming up over a hill a helicopter, and it's a rescue helicopter, and you wave like crazy, you are so excited, you're screaming, yelling, and it lands, and you trudge over there, and with your last ounce of energy, you kind of just roll yourself into the helicopter, just so grateful to be alive. And as you roll in, you kind of roll into what turns out to be another group that was just as lost as you, and they were over the ridge, and they had just been saved as well, and all of a sudden, you have an instant unity, an instant fellowship with these people you've never met before in your life. And maybe their coat costs a lot more than you. Maybe they paid a lot more for their trip than you did. But all of a sudden, all, the only thing that matters is that you have been saved. And you have a connection with those other people who have been saved just like you. Listen, if you are in the church, and by in the church, I don't mean just in this room right now, but if you are in Christ, if you are in the church of Jesus Christ through faith in him, that means that you didn't do anything to get there. You didn't pay any money. You didn't figure anything out. You weren't any smarter. You weren't from the right family. It was Christ and his sacrifice alone that did it all. He surrendered it all so that we could be united with him. So for deep unity, we must be a people who are focused like a laser beam on the cross. A church that focuses primarily on what we know will never experience deep unity because some will always know more. A church that focuses primarily on what we do will never experience deep unity because some will always be able to do more and some will always be able to do less. A church that focuses on always getting it right will never experience a deep unity because there will always be this fear and this angst and this argument needed in order to make sure that we are getting everything right. But a church that focuses primarily, and I've said primarily with all those, okay, that's important. A church that focuses primarily on what Christ has done for us and our need, our common need of a savior, our common joy in the rescue helicopter is going to be a church that's deeply united and that loves each other deeply for Christ's sake. He creates this unity through his death. He creates this unity through his truth. Look at verse 17. So after he came and died on the cross, it says he came and he preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. So both Jews who were near and Gentiles who were far off, we all heard the same gospel. Jesus preached 
the gospel to us. And then in verse 20, it says we are built on, our unity too is built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. The apostles and prophets, they had these authoritative teaching roles. It's their teaching about Christ and the gospel through which God creates and builds his church. And we receive that teaching through the scriptures. And so as we listen closely to the gospel through God's word, week in and week out, as that continues to be our focus, we are built together and we grow in our unity. He creates it through his death. He creates it through his truth. But he creates it through just himself. Not just what he did, not just what we believe about him, but Jesus himself makes this unity possible. And this is really important, all right? So if you've checked out a little bit and we all do it, come back here. This is really important. And I say it's really important because Paul labors this point over and over and over again in this passage. For example, look at verse 13. Paul says, but now, but now, in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near. It's in Christ himself. Look at verse 14. For he himself is our peace. If you want to find peace with anybody, the way you're going to find it is in Jesus. He himself is our peace. And by the way, in the original language, that's about as emphatic as he could possibly say it. He himself, Jesus, is our peace. Verse 15. By abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man. Verse 18, for through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. When we, when we trust in Christ's death and resurrection for us, we are brought into the experience of a real and deep and lifelong, personal, vital union with the Lord of the universe, Jesus Christ. We, we are in him. Colossians 3 says, your life is hidden with God in Christ. Earlier he says, we are rooted and built up in him. And not only are we in him, but he is in us through his spirit dwelling in us. There is this real experienced lifelong union we have with Jesus himself. And because of this reality, Jesus becomes the dominant reality in our lives. If you're a Christian, this is what you're growing into. Jesus becoming the dominant reality in your life. Christianity is about Jesus. And let's not forget that. And you say, well, okay, of course. But it can actually get lost sometimes. But if we lose that, then we are lost. Christianity is about Jesus. I want to see it one more place. It's actually two or three more here, but I'll just show you one more. In verse 20, Paul says, We're built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself, see it again, being the cornerstone. And he uses this illustration to try to help us understand how this unity is created. The, the cornerstone was the principal stone, is the principal stone of the building from which the rest of the building takes its alignment. So when a temple was built, you, the cornerstone was important, and once that was laid, you kind of knew where everything else need, needed to go. So as each wall was built, the, each wall would take its alignment from the cornerstone. That way, the whole building would fit together. So 
when we, as individuals, align ourselves with Jesus as our Lord, as our leader, then we will become increasingly aligned with each other. So probably the best way to pursue deep, real unity with each other is not so much to have a lot of meetings where we sit down and talk about all of our differences and work all that out. I kind of, I used to do college ministry a lot and I would advise people, if you are spending a ton of time talking about your relationship, your relationship's in trouble. Uh, (laughs) Talk about things out there that you both love. Um, So the best way is not just to sit and talk about all of our differences and, and work all that out. The best way is for both of us to be focused and loving Jesus. And as we love him, the cornerstone, we're gonna find that increasingly we just kind of fit together better and better. I'm just deciding here on how much application we'll do. Um, So, to summarize, the church consists, diverse individuals, Jew, Gentile, whatever differences you think and know exist between you and others in this church, diverse individuals brought together into a real and deep unity, which is ours. It's our birthright in Christ, in being born again, but it's also something we grow into and experience more and more. And this happens only through Jesus Christ, his death, his truth, himself. Now let's just apply this in two or three ways. One application. We must be careful not to build our unity on anything other than Christ himself. We must be careful and deliberate and intentional not to build our unity on these other things. Because there are many things that can bring people together in churches other than Jesus. You probably, you know know this. Common hobbies, past history, similar place in life, similar grievance. But imagine a church, and I know this, that's not what this church is like, but imagine a church where everybody's the same age, everybody likes the same music, everybody drinks the same coffee, everybody makes the same schooling choices, everybody dresses in a similar way, everybody has the same politics, everybody likes the same leisure activities. Well, guess what? You're going to experience... Some amazing unity. You're going to feel like, this is is easy. You can get along based on those things, but guess what? The world is going to look at you and say, yeah, of course you're unified. You're the same person. Anybody be unified based on all those things. But instead, Jesus calls us all throughout the New Testament. He's calling us to be a church filled with people from different walks of life, different generations, different ethnicities, different socioeconomic backgrounds, different political opinions, different cultural preferences, people with all kinds of differences, people who in the world would normally stay apart, people who build gates around their community to to keep away from those other kinds of people, but who have come together because our Savior Jesus Christ, a band of natural enemies who love each other deeply from the heart for Jesus' sake. And when that happens, Jesus shines and is glorified in his church. Uh, For the last couple years, I was a part of a small group in which we had people uh, from India, from Nicaragua, from El Salvador, from Canada, um, from Colombia, and it was probably the best small group I've been a part of in terms of kind of the spiritual fruit. But it was also sometimes kind of the hardest group to be a part of because you couldn't just show up and like talk about the football game um, or the soccer game. I mean, because, you know, 
a lot of the group would have no idea what you're talking about and would feel just ostracized. So we were left with the option of, well, I think we all like Jesus. And so that's what we have to focus on. And there was so much goodness that came out of that. Let's be careful not to build our unity on anything other than Christ. Oh, and by the way, well, you have, there's plenty to unite us. Paul says in Ephesians 4, there's one body, one spirit. You were called to one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of us all, who is over all and through all and in, in, in all. A second application is that maintaining this kind of unity is not easy, right? And you know this. Paul hints at it in verse 21 when he says, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. So the image is all of these different stones being put together to make a temple for God. But the way that a building would be built, especially a large temple like this back in the ancient world, is the stones would be put together not by using mortar, to kind of fit everything together, but each stone would be shaved down and kind of broken apart and, and carved in order to make everything fit perfectly. Now, in the early church and in our churches today, this process of shaving down differences and bringing us together amidst our uniqueness was often uncomfortable, right? That's why you have Ephesians and Romans and Galatians and that's why Paul in Ephesians 4, 2 says that we are to bear with one another in love. It's not easy, but we have to bear with people. And who do you have to bear with? You have to bear with people when you're inconvenienced by them or annoyed by them or when you don't understand them or when they make you uncomfortable or when they sin against you. And so this unity that Christ calls us to is something that we have to pursue and it's not always easy. And so we have to bear with one another in love. Last application is that pursuing this kind of unity, though it's not easy, it's worth it. It is so worth it. And it's worth it because it will increase our experience of God's presence. And I say that from what he says in verse 21 of chapter 2. Paul says, in whom the whole structure being joined together. Now that's uncomfortable. But as we're being joined together, we're, it says it grows into a holy temple in the Lord. What happens in a temple? A temple is a place where God dwells, right? A temple is a place where God's glorious manifest presence is experienced. Verse 22, in him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. And so God takes all these different broken stones and every one of us is broken and he brings us together, and then through his spirit, he fits us together in our care groups, in our men's groups, in our women's groups, in the church as a whole. He fits us together, and we're often rubbed the wrong way. But as he's fitting us together, guess what? He's dwelling with us. The church is not this building. It's the people, and the people are the temple of God. And God promises that as we experience and grow in this unity, we will experience and grow in him dwelling among us and with us. And I fear that too many of us don't understand this. And so when it starts to rub, when we get uncomfortable, 
which is when God's moving in and trying to move us into an experience of him that we've never had before, a lot of times what we do is we run away from that. And we think, oh, I need to go find people who just, I, I agree with and I can experience just this ease over here. And God's saying, no, no, no. I decided in the early church to put Jews and Gentiles together into one church, which was a missiological disaster strategy. I mean, that was like a strategy that Paul made, a decision that could have just killed the church right out of the gate. And most missiologists today would say, don't do that. It's a waste of time. And God says, no, it's not a waste of time because that's what I died for. I died to bring people who disagree passionately with each other about different things, whose upbringings are so different, but who have been so riveted and are so in love with Jesus Christ that they're able to come together and then I dwell with them. And I am bringing this humanity that's busting at the seams apart, I'm bringing them back together and I am gonna dwell with them. The one true living God dwelling with his one people forever. The church glorifies God as diverse individuals are brought together into a real and deep unity through Jesus Christ. So let us be eager. That's God's words. Let us be eager to maintain the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. And let's do that by keeping our eyes on Jesus and walking with him. Let's pray together. God, we need your help you tell us in Ephesians 4 that you have already created this unity. You've already created this peace. You've purchased it on the cross. Your spirit accomplishes it. And so let us be eager to just maintain it. Let us be eager to bear with one another. And where we have contributed to division, Lord, uh, help us uh, to make that right. Help us to move towards the people that we have distanced ourselves from. More than anything, help us to be amazed by Jesus and pursue knowing you and loving you and worshiping you. God, bless this church. God, continue to bless this church. Continue to save people here in Riverside through Cornerstone. God, continue to be glorified among this people. In Jesus' name, amen.